Welcome to the Brand the Interpreter podcast. I am your host, Mireya Perez, and this platform is dedicated to sharing the stories of language professionals, that is, the interpreters and translators from around the world. This show aims to highlight not just the profession, but mainly the people behind the amazing work. These are your stories about our profession, and this is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Welcome back, language professionals from around the world, to another episode of the Brand the Interpreter podcast. This is Mireya, your host, and of course, as always, thank you for joining me today. Today's guest, I actually had the opportunity to sit as a workshop participant in her presentation that she provided at the CHIA conference this year in San Diego. CHIA stands for the California Healthcare Interpreting Association. And I had the opportunity to sit in her workshop and learn from her. And she's so funny and engaging and, of course, very knowledgeable about the topic that she's presenting. Now, when I go to these conferences, there are two reasons. Number one, first and foremost, of course, to learn, uh, unless I'm there as an exhibitor or something else. But uh, secondly, also to identify potential guests for the podcast, right? And so I am sitting there wanting to absorb the information, but also sort of trying to see if they would be great matches as guests for the listeners of this podcast. Of course, Gabriela is checking off all of my boxes so that I am able to send an invitation out to her in hopes that she considers being a guest in the podcast. And as I'm sitting there taking copious notes, suddenly when I look up, I identify one of my reels, Instagram reels, on the screen. That's right. She's the presenter that actually included one of my reels as part of her presentation to kind of put some humor into the topic that she was presenting on that day. I have to tell you that there is definitely a difference between posting a reel on social media and not having a live audience and knowing that there's a live audience for something that you've created. Because let me tell you that the feeling of finding the nearest exit to get the heck out of there before she hit play was overwhelming and I could not sink any further into my seat than I already had. Luckily, based on the laughs it received, it was a success. So if you happen to have come across that social media post where I mentioned that one of the presenters at the conference had included an Instagram reel of mine on their presentation or in their presentation, Gabriela was the culprit. So there's a funny little backstory with today's guest. Anyway, on with the show. Gabriela Sebak, Director of Interpreting Services at Chesco Linguistic Services and Adjunct Professor at UMass Amherst, has accumulated more than 15 years of professional experience as a linguist, interpreter, translator, trainer, coach, and mentor. She has spearheaded the development of multiple training and assessment programs throughout her career. Gabriela holds a graduate degree in Spanish translation and interpretation from the world-renowned Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. A former board member of the National Council on Interpreting in Healthcare, she currently leads various council initiatives as chair of the Policy Education and Research Committee. 
Gabriela also co-chairs the American Association of Interpreters and Translators in Education's Job Task Analysis Committee and is a member of the Carolina Association of Translators and Interpreters, American Translators Association, National Association of Judiciary Interpreters and Translators, and ASTM. So, without further ado, please help me welcome Gabriela Seebeck to the show. Gabriela, it is such an honor and a privilege to have you here on the show today. Thank you for being here. Thank you. It's an honor and a privilege for me. Thank you so much for the invitation. Oh, no, absolutely. I knew eventually it would happen. So it was just a matter of when can we make this happen. So I'm glad it finally came to be. I'd like to ask you a few questions just to get started and, uh, you know, with, with today's conversation. Beginning first with getting to know you as Gabriela, the individual first, before we even talk about your extensive background in the industry. So I'd like to begin by asking you, where did you grow up and what is a fond childhood memory of yours? Oh, um, great question. (laughs) I grew up in Houston, Texas, on the southeast side of town within the loop. For those of you that are familiar with um, Houston, Texas, the neighborhood I grew up in is called Pecan Park. Um, And a fond childhood memory that I have is playing outside, just being able to go outside, play with all of the neighborhood kids, walking to school and meeting different classmates as I walked to school. And it, it was it was just a great childhood. Did you consider yourself a social butterfly as a kid? Absolutely not. I had very few friends, <laughs> but they were great friends. Um, the school that I went to had a magnet program, but it was also my neighborhood school. So it was the one I was assigned to. Um, so I hung out with everybody who was smarter than me. And I think it's thanks to all of them that I was able to succeed in school, to be <laughs> honest. What do you remember thinking about in terms of what you wanted to be when you grew up? I had no idea. Um, I was raised by my mother and she had a very clear idea of who she wanted me to be. So I think for a long time, I just borrowed on her dreams and Mm -hmm. she wanted me to be some kind of entrepreneur, this business powerhouse. And at first, that's who I thought I was going to be. Is that what led many of you, maybe you're guiding your decisions in school and, you know, what you were focusing on? What did you, what did you end up actually uh, being interested in as, as you evolved, as you grew, as, as you realized that there was more to, to the world than maybe that? Um, I have to say that um, it's probably a little bit embarrassing, but I didn't really discover what I actually wanted to do until I was already in it. Right. So it was. I was going for business school. Um, Everything that I was doing was business related, but I realized very first accounting class and I realized that's not what I wanted to do with my life. (laughs) Um, And then by happy accident, I realized that there was this whole other profession that existed and that it tied to, to me, to who I was and what I wanted to do. Yeah. And I actually want to talk a little bit about how you ended up with that. But first I need to ask what in the world is a cryptologic linguist? <laughs> Great question. And the truth is that nowadays it's a gister, somebody who takes information in a foreign language and gists information, identifies 
what is reportable and communicates that. Now, back in the day, cryptologic linguist, and the reason it still has that name is because it was somebody that would take signals. It's part of signals intelligence. So it would take signals and it would decrypt them. That's why it's a cryptologic linguist. So it's signals in another language. Think like back in the days with coded messages and all of those things and having to decipher the messages and then translate them. But that's that's not what it is anymore. So share with us how you ended up with that title. Oh, that is a very short and long story altogether. Like I said, I didn't like what I was doing in school. I realized after my first accounting class that business was not for me. I am do I do well with math, but then you start talking about depreciation and all of these other things and I'm just like forget about it. I want an accountant to do that for me. <laughs> So I realized I did not like it, um, but I was stuck. I, I felt stuck and I was actually at a dry cleaners picking up one of my uniforms, wearing one of my other uniforms and on my way to a, yet a third job that I had putting myself through college. And there was a military recruiter there. He was in the army and jokingly, he said, hey, do you want to trade uniforms um, at First, I laughed at him and I was like, this is post 9-11. And I said, no, thank you. I don't want to die. And I was just like that. I was very young. Um, and he said, oh, no, there's office jobs. In fact, don't you speak another language? I grew up in a very Hispanic community. So he knew most of us were bilingual. And I said, actually, I do. And all of a sudden, he opened up this whole new world of possibilities. And I was intrigued. Um Again, I was young and naive, so I thought he was talking about an office job in their recruiting station, but I went in and sure enough, it was to join the military and long story short, that's how I ended up with that job title. Wow. I was trying to be a linguist. Now, the linguist uh, portion or aspect of that, is that part of an assessment that you have to take or how do how do you get identified or how do you put yourself in a linguist role in the military? That is a great question. And you're, you've given me the opportunity to get a little bit nerdy about it because I really, this is really what opened my eyes to language and language acquisition and language proficiency. The military has this test called the D-Lab. And what it is, is a test that evaluates your ability to learn another language. And it does it by testing how well you can identify patterns in language and sounds, just changes in tone and those kinds of things, how you are able to identify um, the purpose of certain words within a sentence and structure and all of that. It's a very interesting test. There's, It's very debatable. Not everybody agrees that it's a good assessment of whether or not you're able to learn another language, but it's super nerdy and I love it. <laughs> and that's what they do. They test you and they see whether or not you have the ability to learn another language. Um, the test said that I did. So then that meant that I qualified to be a linguist. And something that was very interesting about that whole experience is that they don't want you to work in a language that you already speak because a lot of these, um, I'm going to call them bad habits, for lack of a better word, that are associated mm. with those of us that are heritage speakers. Um so because of that, the military is very much aware of that. They want to teach you a new language from scratch. So you take this test. It tells you whether or not you're able to learn a new language. And based on your score, it tells you what level of language you are able to learn. So languages are tiered. 
a tier five languages, one of the most difficult is a language like English. And then you go down to tier four or category four, category three, category two, category one. And your category ones are some of your romance languages that have very simple, easy to learn structures. Interesting. Sounds like something that some of our institutions should adopt. But of course, if you say that not everyone agrees with it, right? There's, I wonder how they came up with that structure. That's so interesting. So you end up starting and you, you're you in the military. What was, what was perhaps if you're able to share an example of your day-to-day as a cryptologic linguist? I have to keep looking back at my notes so I remember how to say that. Um. So the day-to-day was actually quite boring. I, after all of my training and everything, I ended up in beautiful Hawaii. I was stationed in probably one of the most coveted areas in the United States. And I was stuck in a windowless building every day with headphones on, listening to information all day, finding things that I felt were meaningful or valuable, and then sharing them with analysts. And I had an opportunity to do a couple of different things there, but in a nutshell, that's what a cryptologic linguist is. Somebody who is in a location, wearing headphones, listening for usually 12-hour shifts, depending on what you are doing. Somebody who is in a windowless building in a beautiful setting in a a daily. Of course, that would cause distractions perhaps, right? (laughs) You know, there's a window windowed building now in Hawaii. I was part of the groundbreaking for that, but unfortunately, I never had the opportunity to work there. Oh, darn. <laughs> You're just part of it in, in a sense, but not necessarily actively part of it. So what happens then? Had you identified by then that this was a profession in the quote unquote civilian world or or what? What led you towards wanting to do this after you were out of the military? That is a great question. Um, When I first discovered this wonderful world of using language to earn a living, um, I joined the military and I was kind of stuck, right? You have to fulfill your contractual obligation to the military. But while I was there, I was taking advantage of every opportunity the military afforded me, including tuition assistance. So I started looking at degrees and I was like, okay, since I have a job in the military that has to do with language, can I get a degree associated with it? Unfortunately, there weren't a lot of options back then. There are now, and that's so exciting. Mm -hmm. But back then there weren't a lot. So I had to opt for a liberal studies degree just a very generic liberal studies degree with a concentration on foreign language and culture. And then that's kind of how my education started to evolve. And I started to do more research outside of what I was doing now, thinking of what can I do in the future? Mm. And where did you end up afterward? In a school. So (laughs) after, after I completed my commitment to the military, I went back home to Houston, Texas, and I started to apply to jobs. And I was looking now for interpreting or translation jobs. I was mostly looking at translation because I felt it was what I had been doing. Later, I realized it wasn't, but that's a different <laughs> story. Um, so I started looking for translation jobs. I found some in healthcare. Um, the hours that were required did not align with the lifestyle that I needed. I had a brand new baby at the time. Mm. So I kept looking, kept looking. And then the Houston Independent School District was hiring and it seemed like a match made in heaven. Um, So I went ahead and I applied and I was lucky enough that they gave me the opportunity. 
What did you discover upon entering a public school district and coming from, you know, somebody that had has has had some training uh, in the field? What did you what did you end up finding out? First of all, that what I was doing in the military was completely different from what was required out in the private sector. And I know schools are technically public sector, but I mean private as opposed or civilian, so not associated with the military. Mm-hmm. Now I started to learn about accuracy and precision and everything needed to be included. Um, Not only that, but when I was in the military, I had one job. I was a cryptologic linguist. I was doing, in essence, kind of like site translation in reverse. So listening to something and then putting it into writing into another language. When I got to Houston Independent School District, all of a sudden I was having to do translation work and I was having to do interpreting work both of which were completely different from anything I had done before. I had received zero training. The formal training that I received in the military was for a very specific job, and they trained me very well on how to do that one thing. I had no preparation to do what the school district was requiring me to do. Luckily, I had great mentors and colleagues who I worked with. Um, Aimee was somebody that would work hand in hand with me. We would edit each other's work. We would partner on interpreting. And if it wasn't for her, I don't think I would have made it into the field at all. Yeah. Yeah, that that definitely creates a completely different um, working culture. And in addition to to your abilities, I think it it definitely helps heighten them and it, your interest, I think, because mm-hmm. I mean, if you start to feel particularly you mentioned a word earlier, which we'll get into in just a bit as a heritage speaker mm-hmm. and you go into a field in which perhaps it may be dominated uh, or a work environment that is dominated by people that are, um, you know, born and raised in the country for the language that they're, they're speaking and they are stronger perhaps in mm-hmm. the language. And so there's this sense of almost, um, but perhaps right for, for many of us, almost like, oh, I'm not good enough. Right. And so being paired by someone that is open to quote unquote mentoring you in that language and in the job, I think just makes it for a much richer experience mm-hmm. once you're really in the industry, right? What happens after this? And so you're you're in the school district and now you're taking part in interpreting and translation. You've identified definitely by means of experience that these are two completely separate roles. What inspires that in you or or what is inspired in you by this experience, if anything? Well, I quickly learned that translation was not my strength. (laughs) I think that after you receive a few translations that are completely marked up with tracked changes, you start to realize that maybe you're not a strong writer or, or maybe it's not that you're not a strong writer, but taking somebody else's words and trying to put them, put their words into a different language becomes a barrier, right? So I quickly learned that that's not really what my strength was. I could do it. I became very proficient at doing it. Again, thanks to my mentor and colleague who helped me tweak some of those typical mistakes I was making so that I could correct them. But I started to, as I interpreted more and more, I started to feel that that was really what I loved doing. It was so gratifying. I could see, you know, just 
gratitude in people's faces when they were finally able to understand um, different things. And I also started to get very interested in special education and a lot of special education related topics because I was interpreting a lot of different information that was for parents. And, and I felt that that was so important and I really liked it. I remember there was one parent training on the whooping cough and it just, it changed me. And I was like, oh my gosh, like the level of preparation I had to do to going into it, um, getting all of the slides, learning so much about something that could also affect me and my young child that I had at home. I I just, I decided I want to do more of this. And I started to look and started to creep into healthcare. <laughs> and you ended up actually afterwards, right back in health, back into healthcare. Uh, ultimately, you did end up uh, choosing a a university path that would lead you to a master's in translation and interpreting. So, had you solidified by then this was definitely where you wanted to stay? Absolutely. So as I went into healthcare, I ended up changing jobs. I started to, I got trained, I got certified as a healthcare interpreter. And then I started wanting to share what I had learned with others. And I quickly realized that I was very young in the field and that I needed some way of showing people that I also had something to say. And I figured that the best way to tell others or to show others that I had something to share and to bring to the table, even though I was young, was through academic preparation. So I decided to apply to master's programs and I got accepted into one of the most difficult, challenging and most rewarding programs that there are here in the U.S. Now, going through uh, the training uh, to become certified as a healthcare interpreter is one thing and not not by any means belittling the preparation that you go through in order to be able to pass these certification programs. But now you're at a master's program and you're in a particular school in which many of uh, our conference interpreter colleagues go through from the U.S., right, go through uh, in order to prepare themselves for conference interpreting what was your experience or what did you discover going into a program at this caliber now? First of all, I wasn't ready. Um, I think one of the things that was most surprising to me and humbling was the fact that I completed the entry exams. They test your language proficiency going in. You have to complete this huge application process. I finally got it admitted. And throughout my career, I've been getting praised for being a great interpreter. I I felt that I could train others and share knowledge. And then I enter this great program. And it was Mireya, pretty much day one that I realized that I did not have the language competency that I needed to be in that program. Wow. Because I thought I was completely bilingual. I was the, you know, cream of the crop, everybody's dream. Like, I wish I was bilingual so that I could do this or that, or you must be bilingual to be an interpreter. And I felt like I was fully bilingual and I enter. And, you know, I categorize as le languages as level A, B, C, your A is your native strongest language. You have your B language, which is, another strong language, um, but it's not one that you command as well as your A language. Then you have your C language, which is a passive language. Usually you don't use it to interpret, but you can understand it completely. I thought I was a double A based on those descriptions, two native languages, marvelous, awesome. And I enter this program 
And in the very first class, we're asked to introduce ourselves and write a couple of things. And then I realized that I didn't have any A languages. My English wasn't strong enough. My Spanish wasn't strong enough. It kind of goes back to that whole heritage speaker. And I found myself in a situation where all of a sudden I don't know who I am. If I can't speak any languages and my identity is tied to my bilingualism and my heritage is tied to it and my culture is tied to both languages. And now I realize that I don't speak any and it was humbling. I had to start from scratch and start trying to learn the two languages that I thought I was completely fluent in. I love that story because it's, uh, I remember um, walking into the Spanish class at my community college and um, the instructor, everybody, everybody called him um, Sergeant. I don't remember his last name anymore. I don't, I don't know levels in, in military uh, language, but they called him that because um, he was so strict, right, with the Spanish and with a Spanish class. And the very first thing that came out of his mouth is everything you think, you know, especially those of you that that are coming in bilingual, everything you think, you know, you're throwing that out the window as of today. It's like you're learning from day one. I don't care how much Spanish you think, you know, you're throwing that out the window unless you've had taken courses somewhere else, which we were like in, you know, level one, right? So he he knew we hadn't, um, but it was basically stripping you down of what mm-hmm. you think, you know, at, you know, stripping you out of your identity, basically, so that you could have that empty cup and be able to accept it. And so needless to say, not everybody lasted <laughs> because it's kind of like, what? And it, it took me back to high school when um, I started learning words such as boligrafo and things that I was like, this is not Spanish. I don't know where this is coming from. Like, I don't No one, No one in my family is going to understand me. <laughs> And I dropped out of I, I dropped out of uh, Spanish in high school because I didn't understand it. So anyway, um, going back to your story. So what happens then? What how did you how did you identify that? Um, you know, first and foremost, of course, you're you're now in in a new university. You're in a master's program, so it's not as easy as that high school experience of mine, where it's like I'm dropping this class, right? What did you have to do yourself in order to adapt to such a more rigorous and challenging environment and something that you did want to do? So I felt like I was playing catch up the whole time, right? I was going to school with a lot of very skilled professionals, and many of them commanded many more languages than I do. At this point, I had English, Spanish, and then Tagalog, which I acquired while in the military. And they were speaking five, six, seven languages each. And not only that, but they had a very strong A, at least one very strong language. Um, a couple of us were heritage speakers, but most are have a, a very clear native language. And then they have the languages that they have acquired in their schooling and in other settings. And everybody has lived abroad. And I've visited Mexico and I've visited Spanish-speaking countries, but more than a summer, I hadn't lived abroad really. So I was really catching, um, playing catch up. Luckily, I had very strong mentors. So all of the professors there, they quickly identified this need that I had. Um, They weren't shy to tell me and they weren't shy to offer advice too. So advice number one that they gave me, this is something that I share with everybody 
as well is go back to the basics and start reading. And if you have to start reading elementary school books, stories that you would read to children, read to your own children, these books in both languages and just start developing your vocabulary and your command of grammar and collocations and all of that through reading, because that really is the best way to develop language. So I did. I started reading children's books. Um, in English, I was able to quickly upgrade from English books because I did all of my schooling here in the U.S. But in Spanish, I had to start with books that are written for children and I was reading them to my son. And then I would upgrade and upgrade and upgrade and luckily be able to start to command the language. And it was very boring reading these books because you go back to how they teach you to read in elementary school. Mm. You have your dictionary next to you. And every time you encounter a word that you don't know exactly what it means. And remember, we're interpreters and translators, right? So it's not just about not understanding what it means. It's also about not understanding the nuances and meanings or shifts or being able to properly identify equivalents in the other language. So every other word, I felt like I was having to stop consult my dictionary, consult a bilingual dictionary, and then find the words and started building this glossary of words that I was never going to use, but it was helping me develop my language. Throughout your processes and experiences, both career-wise, educational-wise, and a mix of personal, you've identified that there is a topic of interest of yours, which we've heard you mention a couple of times during our conversation, and that's heritage speakers. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about your passion about this particular topic. For many of us that can identify uh, with being a heritage speaker, let's begin by breaking down what that means first. So heritage speaker, the way that I see it is anybody who either came to the U.S. while they were very young, elementary school age, and they started their schooling or completed their schooling here in the United States. And I'm specifically talking about the ones in the U.S. because our reality is a little bit different mm. than it is for immigrants in other countries um, where perhaps there's different kinds of programs that support. But here in the U.S., it's either somebody who was born in the U.S., to immigrant parents or came to the U.S. before they were teenagers. So before completing their elementary and even some of their secondary schooling came to the U.S. and started to learn and have their academic preparation in English. So their level of acquisition of their native language um, may be limited and is mostly the type of language that they use at home, which is limited in scope. And then they don't have a lot of academic formal schooling in the language. So they don't get to learn some of the grammar rules and all of those informal settings. Although some may, and again, our levels vary based on what our experiences were. We see that there's bilingual programs now in the US, um, but standards for language proficiency in the US are such that even those who happen upon a bilingual program may not have the opportunity to acquire the linguistic skills that would be expected if you were a true native speaker who acquired the language where the language is originally spoken. And what about this topic that now you've identified as being a topic of, of, of high interest for you? Oh my gosh. I, I think there's so much about it. First of all, I think my experience going into the master's program and having my identity tied so closely to my language proficiency and my bilingualism, to me, that was something that was very difficult for me to separate my identity from my level of competence in each of the languages. Mm. Um, secondly, as interpreters and translators, 
that is number one, proficiency in each of the languages. And many of us that serve in this profession here in the U.S. are heritage speakers. We are speakers who came with both languages. We are to a certain degree bilingual, but we often don't have a clear measure of our level of competence in each of the languages. And it's it's very important to understand to what level we speak the language and separate that from our identity and culture and look at it from a more academic point of view in terms of our career and our profession. Yeah, I think I feel like that's super important when we talk about this particular uh, subject or when I hear it uh, mentioned, because, of course, I can definitely identify uh, with with some of the struggles that this occurs, especially as it relates to identity. There is a lot of a lot of times where um, I found myself in positions in which I thought, how are you going to tell me I'm not bilingual, right? Like I'm fully bilingual. Like everyone around me under, understands me, which is of course, AKA everyone, my family, <laughs> right? And and I grew up with nothing but Spanish in the home. Uh, it wasn't until I started in the educational institutions where, you know, the, it was it was all English, right? I was all in. I did have that. Um, I did get the opportunity. I grew up in Los Angeles, so I was able to have the bilingual education as part of my uh, very first years and then and then I remember what prop that was but um you know something came through and they did away with bilingual education and it was around third grade I think third or yeah about third grade where I no longer had the opportunity to do it but for me it was just like I am fully bilingual I mean I mm-hmm. grew up across the street from a tortilleria for crying out loud right that's how bilingual I thought I was until I got into the academic setting and it was like you know, like I said, everything, you know, out the window, right. It's, Mm -hmm. and it it definitely was because I felt lost. So I could only imagine at that level and what that did for you in terms of, like you said, playing catch up. What else about heritage speaking? Do you, heritage speakers, do you feel uh, is important to highlight, particularly for those that can identify with this, the specific nuances that are tied with that, what else about this topic um, is of interest to you? Well, I think that, and I did it myself right now as we were talking, we often focus on the negative things, right? All of the things about the language that we don't quite have as a heritage speaker, but there's a couple of very important, awesome things that we do have, and that is the pronunciation. So oftentimes when we're heritage speakers, we pronounce both languages like native speakers because we are native speakers of the language. And I think one of the things that we need to always keep in mind as is one, yes, be very aware of your level of language proficiency and where your gaps may be, maybe, but also keep in mind that you are a native speaker of both languages. Your pronunciation is native. You have the ability of producing the sounds and everything else can be learned. Mm. Grammar, structure, that can be learned if you need to learn it. And a lot of times there are characteristics in the language that even come naturally to us because we've learned them, because we've been exposed to the language throughout our lives. Terminology we can acquire in the other settings. And we are jewels amongst um, interpreters and translators. And I don't want those that have acquired a second language through academic means to feel that um, I'm saying we're better than them, but we do have an ability that those that acquire the language do not, and that is native pronunciation. Vocabulary, all of these other things, we can acquire them. 
we can go and learn and build glossaries. And to be honest, you wouldn't expect a doctor to know legal terminology unless it's associated with malpractice suits, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think sometimes we fall into this imposter syndrome because we expect and others expect it from us that because we are bilingual, we need to know everything about every language and be everything to everyone. And that's not true. When I was going through the master's program, we got to the topic of economics and that was a miserable experience for me because remember when I told you about being in the accounting classes? Your favorite class? For me? Yeah, my favorite <laughs> class. Well, Economics wasn't a good one for me either. And I had to learn about economics to get through my classes, an entire semester devoted to economics for a couple of my classes. And I just had to get through it. And I'll tell you what, I learned what I had to do for that course. And now I have forgotten it all because that's not an area of interest and that's okay. And we just need to find what our area of interest is and just develop our vocabulary there. Yeah, I wish wish we could we could somehow put this message in in a jar for um our native speakers uh that are still in high school right that mm-hmm. have the opportunity to take these uh foreign language particularly if it's their own language right like i'm thinking of obviously my combo and 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 the spanish class that had i stayed i think i would have learned a lot of the things that my parents couldn't teach me even if they wanted to you know right. they had uh you know very very um low level education and so even if they did want to teach me they they really couldn't and and i would have learned all that in in high school had i not thought myself, I'm fully bilingual. I don't need this. I don't even know what Spanish you're speaking, but it's not my Spanish, right? And then it's like, drop the class. I wish we could encapsulate that to them so that they could learn that it, there's more to it than what we're learning at home. There's so much more to it than what we're learning at home. But that's human nature, right? Anything that we do, we do it just until we're good enough. Mm. Think about typewriting, think about driving, like we start driving and we drive the way that we need to, to get our driver's license and to do whatever commute, whatever it is that we have to do. We don't continue to perfect our driving to become NASCAR drivers or, you know, professional stunt doubles or whatever it is. We do it until we're good enough. And we do the same thing with language. And here in the U.S., unfortunately, the standard for language is so low for anything that's considered a foreign language. Think Mm -hmm. about high school, think about college. They're only teaching you up to a level that they're using a scale that calls it advanced. But when it comes to the professional world, it's really very limited. It's a Mm -hmm. limited professional level. And that is considered the maximum standard for bilingualism. You go to other parts of the world and the standard for bilingualism has both the business language or the official language of the country at the same level as yes. any foreign language is being taught. And we don't do that here in the U.S. So I think it's it's in the culture, in the academic culture, that we automatically say your English needs to be up to this level up here. You need to be at a very professional level in your English. And then when it comes to the second language, they're like, you need to be advanced. And by the way, advanced is only limited when it comes to the professional sector. Yes. I feel like also in addition to that, uh, 
what I've what I have noticed in education is, um, you know, we we it comes and goes, of course. But right now we're in a moment in which bilingual education is really being pushed into mm-hmm. our public schools again, because I know it's happened before. Right. And so you have these schools that specialize in the dual immersion. Um, some of which, depending, I think, do it right, depending on the demographics, uh, will bring in, for instance, Spanish, right? Um, but I've seen others in which uh, there's there's maybe French, right? Maybe mm-hmm. it's French as the uh, the other language, the second language. And what I would love to see is that the schools are bringing in the language based on the demographics of those schools. So if you have Korean, if there is Chinese, or and if there is the ability to bring in those languages, which you just said are it, languages that are going to be a part of perhaps the prof- the professional uh, mm-hmm. area of focus wherever you're at, because that's going to be the demographics. Many of us maybe will venture out of where we grew up, but a lot of us stay within our communities and come back to work within our communities. And I wish I would see that more often. You know, I I remember when I was, again, going back to that experience in high school, when I said, I'm dropping Spanish class because I already know this and mm-hmm. the few things that they're teaching me is like nonsensical supposedly me so let me do some <laughs> French now <laughs> ask me how I did in French and if I remember anything in French because there was no need for it in the community my community was highly English Spanish um, mm-hmm. where we grew up and so you know I, I I can definitely see how there is a high need um, not just for for the immersion of other languages here in the U.S., but also really identifying those pockets of the different languages, right, for for our young ones, so that it's actually something that we can use in our professional setting in the future. Talk to me now, uh, Gabriela, about uh, your experience now that you've had some years with with experience in the profession and in education, going out and finally teaching a few things uh, here and there. What have you identified as potentially a gap that you are now a part of its solution or hopefully of its solution in the near future? What have you identified in the industry as a gap? I think there are many, many gaps. And, and you know, professionalization, I would say, is one of the biggest ones. Here in the U.S., we have chosen to specialize before we generalize. So Mm -hmm. each sector in which we interpret or translate um, has kind of their own path going. We've seen court interpreting, which again, and, and these are all ongoing movements, right? I don't think anybody has reached the end. But court interpreting, for example, started with the Court Interpreter Act, um, in the 70s, they we have seen certification exams and everything, and you still see movements throughout the country to improve the conditions, the working conditions for interpreters. North Carolina, which is where I currently live, they recently were able to get an increase in Denver, Colorado court interpreters were recently able to negotiate for an increase as well. So we see that there are still ongoing movements, but court interpreters are very well advanced in comparison to some of the other sectors where we serve. I mentioned being in healthcare and in healthcare, we have a certification exam, which is not required 
in most states. I think there are very few states that require healthcare interpreters to be certified, and they only require them to be certified for specific settings like workers' comp hearings or qualified medical evaluations or very specific types of interpreting, but it's not generalized or anything. Um, Pay is something that still needs to be worked on. Now, going back to the first kind of area that I entered, um, and I think one that's very, very close to my heart because of that is interpreting in educational settings. And there's nothing. Um, Well, I wouldn't say nothing, right? Because there are movements throughout the country that are currently taking place to professionalize interpreting and education. And I have to say, because I've done it, it's one of the most difficult settings and most varied because you have so many different things that come together under a single umbrella of educational interpreting. Now, once we go into any of these different sectors, then we start gaining that interest for okay, how do I even start to interpret, which is kind of backwards if you think about it. First, I'm thinking education or medical or legal. And then I'm thinking, okay, well, how do I get started interpreting consecutive, simultaneous, your basic skills, where in other countries, in other continents, you first learn the basics of this is how you do consecutive. This is how you do simultaneous. This is site translation. And then you get into professionalizing. Now let's specialize in doing these things in the healthcare setting or in the judicial setting or in the educational setting. So we've gone about things a little bit differently. And I think it's because of the need, because we've been addressing a need. There's a need. Here we go. Let's fill it. Yeah, no matter what, let's feel it. Yeah. Well, I mean, don't get me started with the whole educational piece because yeah, it's like like yourself definitely had my experience there. And I must agree completely uh that there are all sorts of different types of interpreting in educational settings and that most definitely well merits an analysis of mm-hmm. you know this this particular role. And um, the the just the organizations themselves, the, the educational setting aspect and the educational system, uh, you know, there's we we know that there is the in-house, but there's also the freelancer that takes part mm-hmm. of, um, you know, these settings as well. And they all work for the same, you know, for the, with the same objective, but the experience is quite different. Uh, so being in the educational setting, I think there's also that combination of your bilingual staff that are already existing in there that don't necessarily want to make interpreting or translation their profession, but it's part of their responsibility and without the training. And then you've got the trained interpreters that come in and want to, you know, make change in there. So there's definitely so much room for analysis in this particular specialization, which leads me actually to the next topic of today's conversation, having to do with the fact that you did in fact end up with, uh, you've been part of several associations already, but there's one in particular that is focusing critically on uh, analyzing the role in educational settings, and that's the American Association of Interpreters and Translators in Education, right? Otherwise known as AAITE. What is your role there? And what was just recently brought to light that is super exciting? 
Thank you so much um, for this opportunity, because this is a critical time to be able to talk about this um, organization, specifically the work that we're doing. So as you mentioned, yes, I am a part of AITE. Um, when we all started in this wonderful initiative to look to professionalize interpreters and translators in education, just kind of shine a little bit of light. But you can't really do anything without having data. And I am a huge driver for data. Um, so the committee that caught my attention was the Job Task Analysis Committee. And I have been serving as co-chair of the Job Task Analysis Committee since 2020. Um, I've had a couple of different co-chairs that have served with me since then. And we embarked on this voyage to complete a job task analysis and really find out what it is that interpreters and translators in educational settings are being asked to do. What are their roles? What are their responsibilities? What are their duties? What tasks are they conducting? And um, in reference to what you just mentioned, we just published a preliminary report. It's called What Employers Are Looking For. And it really puts together um, what we found or what we discovered after analyzing over 300 job descriptions throughout all of the United States for interpreters and translators in education and looking at what is it that they're looking for in terms of education, in terms of experience, but most importantly, in terms of duties. What tasks are they asking in these job descriptions for interpreters or translators to do? And we also took a little peek at pay. What are they offering them? I'm... I mean, we'll talk a little bit further about this, but I have an idea that everything that we've been challenged with when we entered this specialization, for those of us that were in-house, we'll finally be able to be backed up uh, with mm -hmm. some data, right? Because all these challenges sound, all these topics sound like challenges that we've encountered once we were in the school district that we worked for and then identified what in the world is happening in here, right? So let's begin first by that first piece you mentioned, education requirement. What did this report highlight? So what it highlighted was very interesting. Um, first of all, a lot of the job descriptions that we looked at, um, many, many of them, almost a third didn't list anything when it came to education. They didn't have a minimum educational requirement. Um, a lot of different inferences can be made. Maybe minimum education is being assumed by the prospective employers. You know, there's so many different things that can play into that, but most of them didn't require. When they required, the majority of them required a high school diploma or equivalent. Yeah. When you think about who we're interpreting for um, and the minimum educational requirement that they have, plus the linguistic implications of the level of education kind of gets you thinking whether or not it may be appropriate or not. Did it highlight the fact that the education requirement did not match the job, uh, a job uh, responsibilities for this particular role? I have to say that because there's a lot of um, disagreement as to what is required in the field for interpreters and translators, um, we're not able to make that assessment as of yet. For mm -hmm. example, the entry level exams for certification, which is the certification exams for healthcare, they also require a minimum of education of a high school. But again, you're working with providers, you're interpreting for providers whose minimum education is a doctorate. So what the minimum level of education is in the field hasn't been established yet. But at this point, it is very interesting, especially when you look at 
the difference between spoken languages and signed languages and the fact that when you look at signed languages, the majority of them or more of the ones that did list something listed higher education. They've also had certification in place for a little bit longer specific to educational settings. So for those that don't list anything and they know that there are educational requirements associated with certification, is that what is causing them not to have a requirement? Again, all of these are assumptions, but we're running a survey to figure out what's really going on. Oh, yeah, we're definitely going to get into that topic. Let's let's talk a little bit further about some of the other findings. What about in terms of experience? What did the report identify? Well, when it came to experience, um, the majority of them, again, and this is for spoken and sign language, did not list a requirement at all. They didn't list whether surprise. or not you needed to have experience. <laughs> surprise, surprise, <laughs> surprise, right? Surprise, surprise. <laughs> um, and I have to say that when I was contracted as or hired as a staff translator, um, my experience had been in something completely different. That's something that I have already shared um, with all of your listeners during this interview. So obviously, <laughs> there wasn't much there either. Um, and this was over 10 years ago that I that I did that. And it seems that it hasn't changed. When experience is listed, it's one to two years. And I have to tell you that if I hadn't had strong mentors helping me and holding my hand along the way, there are advanced skills that are required. I mean, translation alone is a very difficult task and it's an advanced level skill. You you need to have some kind of education to be able to translate because you need to be a competent writer. Um, for interpreting, one of the most difficult modes of interpreting is simultaneous interpreting. And that is required. It was required on a daily from me when I was a staff interpreter in an educational setting. So to see that no experience is required in educational settings, to me personally, it's concerning, but we'll see what more of the data brings. And maybe it's not a requirement, but those that actually are serving in the profession do have the experience. We'll find that out. Oh yeah. There's, and there's so many aspects to that, right? Like just with this one example of translation, you know, you've got the first and foremost at the very beginning, we, we're not seeing that uh, experience or lengthy amount of experience or education, mm -hmm. right? Now we're tying both of these together is required, but yet once you enter the types of communications that are being sent to you, especially if you're at a district level, you're talking mm -hmm. about, you know, legal stuff. You're you're talking about medical stuff. You're talking about, you know, the high level communications coming from the superintendent's office sometimes with the COVID situation that hopefully are wrapping up and all that. The the high level of of just the need for the medical aspect, right, and the background and understanding. So I think that there's a, a almost like a, a misconception out there of the types of translation work that is actually a part of the role, mm -hmm. uh, which, which leads to the assessment of your translation abilities when you're entering the school district does not match necessarily the type of communications that come through, which is why many people are able to pass the exam on a really low level uh, bilingual ability or language ability. But then when they're given this high level uh, translation assignments, it's 
you know, it's completely above their skill set. So very interesting. As I said, much of the things I think that a, a, a lot of us have encountered if we are a part of the agency itself, like the educational institution itself, if we're in-house interpreters. But now we've got the empirical data to prove everything that we felt has been a challenge, right, for us. What else it was highlighted as part of this report? Well, I think the biggest finding that we found was that there are discrepancies. So there's inconsistencies throughout the United States. Um, not surprising for many of us, but it it is important to see that we finally have data that shows that the requirements throughout the country are completely different. Um, of course, there was limited data from certain states. Some states had very few um, job descriptions that were available at all. And we did reach out to the Office of Education for each of the states where we were struggling to find job descriptions, but we were able to get something from each state. And we see that there's differences. Even within a state from one school district to another, there may be differences in terms of what is required. So we see a lot of differences throughout. So there's no kind of standardization when it comes to what to request, what to require, what is needed, which tells us that people aren't quite sure, right? If we had clear standards out there that tell us this is what it takes to be an interpreter in educational settings, then we would have a starting point with some looking to kind of exceed expectations or exceed the standard or feeling that their needs might be beyond what is the standard. But even for sign language interpreters where there are certification exams, the certification exams have clear recommendations as to what the minimum scores should be. Even there, we saw in states where the minimum score is a lot lower than what the association itself recommends. Again, there's also different things that could play a factor, such as not enough interpreters in the area. We've seen that in the news often, there aren't enough interpreters to meet the need. So a lot of potential speculation, but that's why we're running that survey um, to figure out what the reality is. And you were just talking about things that are very, very important within this role, which is testing. And that's something that none of the job descriptions mention testing, really, other than those that mentioned certification. And it was mostly for sign language interpreters. That's something that we're looking to ask as well. What testing was conducted because there may be that some are not being tested at all. I know that mm-hmm. several years ago when I entered the field, I was not tested. Mm-hmm. Had they tested me, they would have probably realized that my experience with translation was completely different and that I did not possess those skills, not as developed as they needed to be. Well, I think role. for many of our school districts, it's just, it, it's the entire system they mm-hmm. need to revamp, which potentially, which is why nobody wants to take on that Goliath, right? Because it's right. it's such a big uh, responsibility and there's so many components to it. You've mm-hmm. got people that maybe, let's say, uh, have put together the assessment, you know, how at whatever level that may be. But then the the reviewers, those that are the scoring, have a very minimal level of bilingualism themselves. They might not even be uh, appropriate employees to be reviewing and assessing and scoring this assessment. So it's like, yeah, good enough. Like we talked about <laughs> earlier, right? They, they, they're as fluent as I am. <laughs> this sounds good to me. So then there's that whole aspect, you know, even mm-hmm. within the organization, 
the structures that have been created to to really identify and weed out the people that are really going to be able to take on this role. I think that even that is an issue. So again, we go back to, you know, us knowing that these are challenges, but now we have the data to prove it. And I know that this isn't just the only survey. This 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 is just the very tip of the iceberg of what mm-hmm. you're currently doing. What else is are we should we be looking forward to in terms of uh, analyzing this particular specialization? So thank you for asking that because I've been dropping hints about the survey here and there in hopes that you would ask me, but. So all of this, um, this study, it showed a lot of different things. For example, most um, spoken language interpreters are also translators. So the job descriptions were for interpreter slash translator. Um, And then they also included duties that fall outside of interpreting or translation. Not so much for sign language, but it definitely did for spoken language interpreters. The majority required other things. Mm -hmm. All of these are assumptions that we're making based on the job descriptions that were out there. But we know that HR professionals are the ones that prepare these job descriptions. So this is what they seem to be looking for. We are conducting right now a survey that is currently out and circulating to figure out what it is that is actually happening. So what is the reality? After analyzing all of these job descriptions, we really use them to come up with questions. So this is what we're seeing in the job descriptions. So the question is, is it true? So all of these, is it true questions are the ones that are in our survey. And we're asking people, what level of education is required? Also, what is your level of education? So we're trying to compare not just what's required, what did they ask you for, but what do you actually have Ooh. to figure out who who is doing this? Right. Who are the interpreters and translators out there? Yeah. And what I'm sure, well, I'm not sure, but I I think I know will come out is that many of the people that enter the field uh, have above the average you know, high school requirement because they understand what it actually entails. Right. And so mm-hmm. it, it whether it's a higher education level here in the U.S. or if they're coming from another country, they definitely have the training and understand that a higher level is needed. So I'm so curious to to find out what the results of that is. Is that survey still open? And when do uh, people have the opportunity until when to fill out the survey? Great question. And thank you for asking. So yes, the survey is currently still available as of today, April 17th, and it will not close until after our annual um, or our inaugural conference, which is going to be in Denver, Colorado, the weekend of May 6th. So after that conference, so around the 7th or 8th of May is when the survey will officially close. So if anybody, any of your listeners are interested in sharing their thoughts and experiences, if they have any colleagues that work in educational settings, please, please, please share the link with everyone so that we're able to collect all of this information and be able to really understand what the reality is of those of us that are working in the field. Why is this process so important? Why are we doing data to do what with it at the end? Well, I think there's a couple of different layers to it, but let's just start at the most basic. And that is 
a profession. In order for us to be a true profession, we need to be a group of professionals. And a professional is somebody that upholds themselves to certain standards. If this report on the job descriptions were it, and this defined our entire profession, we wouldn't be a profession because there seems to be no standard. Everyone is doing whatever they want throughout the entire country. And we see differences in levels of education, differences in um, levels of experience, differences even in the duties that these individuals are being asked to perform within this role. So how can we be a profession when there's no standardization? But how do we standardize? We can't ignore the reality of all of us who are currently working in these settings. So to professionalize, we need to first, one, document what is our current reality. Then after documenting what our current reality is, do we are we able to then start to do additional research to see what, if anything, needs to change and then start to set the building blocks around that so that we can truly become a profession. Oh my goodness. Most definitely. Yes. What if anything needs to change? Everything needs to change. (laughs) (laughs) I agree with you, Mireya, but we'll let, we'll let the data tell us. (laughs) So speaking of which actually, so we'll let the data demonstrate, but we can't have any data if people aren't participating. And I know that just like you were able to come up with over 300 responses of different job descriptions, there are so many boots in the ground currently nationwide mm-hmm. performing these duties, whether trained or untrained or meeting the minimum requirement or above the minimum requirement, whatever there may be, there's so many different levels. And so we need your voices. We need people mm-hmm. to come out, uh, uh, you know, out of the, out of the darkness out there, just at least to be able to share your experiences, put it in something that is going to be able to be shared, that we're going to be able to collect data for and be able to be representative of what is actually happening as opposed to what Mireya thinks is out there already. (laughs) (laughs) So make sure that you go to the episode notes follow the link, fill out this form. If you've ever wanted to be a part of a nationwide change in professionalizing this specialization, I think this is the absolutely critical moment to do so. If you're not part of, you know, you're you're unable to even volunteer for the associations that are out there in trying to professionalize this role, then this is an important step and an important way to contribute to for us to be able to head in that direction. And I think that all the hard work that has already been done merits at least the opportunity for others to hear our voices in writing by means of empirical data. So, you know, just don't walk, run over and fill out this form before it closes. There's plenty of time. We're publishing this episode with enough time for you to fill out this survey about how long do you think it would take an individual to complete the entire survey? It takes no longer than 20 minutes. And we do ask that everybody read each question carefully. Um, The primary investigator is listed uh, in the survey information. So if you have any questions about any of the questions, you can always reach out to us. Please respond. Please respond as truthfully and honestly as you are able to and do it quickly because we only have a couple of weeks left. Yeah, only a couple of weeks left. And I'm going to take it up a notch and not only ask that 
you fill it out, but that you give it to someone else and be an accountability partner and ensuring that they fill it out. You know, we're able to do this for all kinds of other stuff, right? When we, when we find a good sale or, you know, when we read a good book or when we listen to a great podcast and then, (laughs) and then refer it over, let's do the same thing so that, you know, we could get more, more people to fill out the survey. Gabriela, it has been an amazing conversation that I've had with you today. I sincerely appreciate your time and your willingness to come on here and share your experience and your story. Before we go, I'd like to ask you one last question, and that is if you could share any resources or recommendations for the new generation of language professionals that are coming in into the industry, what would that be? I think the number one resource that I would share would be LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn is a great way to network with other professionals to find out about excellent resources that exist. Your podcast, for example, is a great way to hear the stories of so many other professionals that have joined the profession and learn a little bit about the path that they followed so that you can follow along a similar path. Not only that, but to connect with those professionals and ask them directly if they'd be willing to mentor or coach you. There are tons of information that comes through LinkedIn in terms of news, in terms of certifications and information, and even misinformation that's out there. I feel like LinkedIn is a great place to go and find out, okay, what is the truth and start to separate the truth from the things that might be a little misleading in our profession. Plus, you can find out about blogs, you can find out about training opportunities and about associations by looking at other professionals that in our field and what associations that are part of, you can join associations as well and become part of that change that you want to see in the profession. Oh, most definitely. LinkedIn is one of my favorite uh, professional platforms, social Mm -hmm. media professional platforms. So yes, thank you for having shared that. And of course, the last question is where can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you do? Great question. Thank you so much. Um, so I currently work for a language company called Chesco Linguistic Services. Um, Chesco, L-S-C-E-S-C-O-L-S.com. You can find my bio and profile there. You can also visit my blog, dynamicequivalence.com. Um, I try to post semi-regularly. I'm going to start doing about once a quarter. Um, and I just publish a couple of different things and absolutely connect with me on LinkedIn. I am always going to be willing to answer any questions that come across and direct you to other great resources like Mireya or any of the other mentors that I've had in my career, if they can help you along the way as well. Oh my gosh. And yes, her blogs are great, very educational, informative. So make sure to follow the link. I'll make sure to have these links for you in the episode notes so that you're able to connect with Gabriela. In addition to that survey, that's your homework for today, guys. Gabriela, a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Have a great one. Hey, thanks for sticking around till the very end. If you'd like to connect with me, head on over to the website, brandtheinterpreter.com and click on the connect with me tab. You can also stay connected on social media, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube as Brand the Interpreter or Mireya Perez on LinkedIn. Till next time.